We are in a series, we've begun a series called Unforced Rhythms of Grace. The series comes from a deep conviction I have that we are to spend the next season of our church life together investing in growing as followers of Jesus. And this question that comes, that has come up a few times, it came up over the summer, it's come up again since, where we talked about this verse in John chapter 10, verse 10, where it says that Jesus has come to give us life and life in all of its abundance. And yet the reality that most of us don't experience that most of the time. And so there's this disconnect. With, is, that, is that really true? Is that actually what we're being offered? Is it real? And the deep conviction that yes it is, but the journey to get there isn't always straightforward. And so we've ended up looking at this passage here. from the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? I'm going to add a couple for this morning. Are you frightened? Are you worried? Are you broken down? Come to me, says Jesus. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Anyone fancy the idea of a real rest? Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. This is the whole of the first section of this series that we're going to do. It's about being with Jesus. Why? Because when we're with him, we can learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And we discover that he won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on us. That if we keep company with him, we learn to live freely and lightly. The immediate context of this passage is Jesus has been talking about his relationship with his father and how that is the source of all of his life. And in some sense, I just want to affirm what Tim said earlier, that actually for all of us, our life, the abundant life is found as we are with Jesus and begin to experience the relationship he has with his father, that that is the gift to us. And we know that the reason the Spirit comes is to lead us to the Father. And we are brought to this place where we can cry out, Abba, Abba. And so last week we looked at the first of our practices. We looked at silence and solitude. And we talked about what it is to be on our own and we talked about what it is to sit in silence and the importance of that in the busyness and craziness of our culture. And we practiced that. And I love that word practice because it means a thing we do, but it also means something that we are learning, right? We practice something and we get better at it. Um, So when we finish this sermon, which isn't about silence and solitude, we're going to do a time of silence again. I know some people really appreciated it last week and some people found it really awkward. So we're going to practice it and we're going to keep doing it. Because actually it's really important for us to begin to posture ourselves in ways we can hear Jesus, that we can be with Jesus and silence is one of those. And so all the introverts are like, oh good. So I'm giving you something to hang on to because we're going to talk about community for the rest of the time and you're going to be screaming out, oh no I can't do that. We're going to talk about community because here's the thing. 
Silence and solitude is not enough. I said this last week, that the risk with solitude, the risk with being on our own, is that we actually play into the the culture that we live in, to the overwhelming narrative of our current culture, which says, you are you, and you can decide whatever is good for you, just so long as it doesn't infringe on me. And you can do whatever you want. And actually, one of the risks of the way that we're talking about these kind of practices is that most of them are things that we will do to help us to be with Jesus. And it could, could sound like, oh, well, actually, it's just me and Jesus, and as long as we're okay, everything's fine. And the reason I'm doing community as the second of these talks is because I want to say that's not true. It's simply not true. It is not the case that it's a good idea to be a Christian on your own. I don't know anyone... No, I don't know anyone who has done it successfully. I know many who've tried. Who've said, I'm done with the church, I've had enough of that. And we must take part of the blame for that because often they're done with the church for very good reasons. Okay? We just got to be honest about that. When they're like, I'll follow Jesus on my own, it'll be fine. And it never is. It never is. And it's a great shame. So I don't want you to hear me as saying in this context that what we should be doing is just me and Jesus and we'll be fine. And so we're going to talk today about community. And it makes sense as well of the, con- uh, the sermon that Bell preached uh, in the summer. If you were here, we did a series on uh, pieces of art that we looked at. And uh, Bell looked at the, prod- uh, the return of the prodigal, that beautiful uh, painting by Rembrandt, where the son is at the feet of the father, and the father has uh, the son in a warm embrace. And Bell showed us that in the painting, uh, the father's hands are different. There's two different hands. One uh, looks very masculine and supportive, and the other looks really feminine and is, uh, uh, sorry, the, fa- the masculine one looks like it's really challenging, and the, uh, the, fe- the more feminine hand uh, looks really supporting. And Bell made the point that, you know, Rembrandt isn't really a terrible painter and he didn't paint them wrong by mistake. He was making a point. And she helped us to see how this point is something that exists in the Gospels. That Jesus, in his ministry, as he was discipling those who walked with him, he gave them both the hand of challenge and the example she used was the Great Commission. Go to all the nations. Well, that's a pretty big challenge. But then the hand of support that came along with it. I am with you, even to the end of the age. Now, one of the reasons we need community is because if we're going to live out that kind of discipleship, we don't do it on our own. We do it with others alongside us. So as I said, we've got this cult of independence. And I quoted from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, last week, and I will do the same again this week. Let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. He will only do harm to himself and to the community. That goes for our solitude thing last week. We need to learn to be on our own. And we bring something to community, and if we can't be on our own, we will do damage to community. But the reverse is also true, says Bonhoeffer. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. These are not two polar opposites. They're two things that sit together. We need them both. 
We can't just be in solitude. We can't just be in community. We must embrace a rhythm between the two. guy is a sociologist. He was based uh, in England for many years. He was originally from Poland, a guy called Zygmunt Bauman. Uh, he's not a Christian, but he wrote a, lots of profound things about community. And I, I've always found this to be really striking. He says it is nice, if we say it is nice to be a part of community, that is an oblique testimony of actually not being a part or being unlikely to remain a part for long unless individual muscles are flexed and individual brains are stretched. What he's saying here is, if we sit back and see community as this thing that's out here and we're going, oh, it's nice to be a part of a community. Actually, I'm not really part of the community because it's only worth is because it makes me feel nice. Does that make sense? And there's a real risk we can do that in the church. That we love this idea of community, but just don't ask me to do terribly much about it. You know, don't expect me to participate in it. But I want to know that it's there. This is how our world talks about community at the moment. There's this shift going on, right? All this loneliness that's happening. Making people aware that we're not actually built to be on our own. And so they're saying things, oh, well, we need community. But not community they participate in. Not community that costs them something. Just something that will meet my needs. Which isn't community at all. Or at least not Christian community. Why do we need community? Because God has created us for community. Genesis 2 verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We were never built to be alone. We were built to be in community. And why is that? Because we are told that we are image bearers of God. And God himself is a community of three persons. We are image bearers. In our relationships with one another, in our community together, we paint something of a picture of who God himself is. So I'm going to suggest that in order to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers us, we must be in community. That in order to learn from Jesus, we must be in community. In order to live well in this world with all the chaos that we've talked about this morning, all the difficulties, all the challenges, all the things that we have to face, we must be in community. We cannot do this alone. If we want to learn these unforced rhythms of grace, we must be in community. What is that community like? Well, let's turn in our Bibles, if you have them with you, or if you have them on your phone or whatever. We're going to look at Mark chapter 3. The verses will appear on the screen in just a moment. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister 
and mother. I'm not sure if we grasp how profound this statement is. Jesus is upending everything that the culture of the day was built on. See, first century Hebrew culture wasn't like 21st century Edinburgh culture. Family didn't mean what it means here. I don't know what you think of when you think of family, but most of us think of something along the lines of mum, dad, and 2.4 kids, maybe a grandmother or a grandfather thrown in for good measure. I tried to find an image I could use here, so I've got two or three image banks that I have access to that mean we're not stealing people's copyrighted stuff. Type in family, what do you get? You get photos of mum, dad, and two kids. Tried to get a multi-generational family image, wasn't there. Tried to get a multi-racial family image, wasn't there. Because we have this fixed view of what family is. That wasn't the case. It wasn't the case in first century Judaism, in first century Jerusalem. They had a really strong sense of family and your identity was intricately linked, not to your marriage status, but to your family status. That in actual fact, all of your identity came through your, the, the paternal bloodline. That's where you, you got it from. And so you got cool names, not second names, but you became, uh, you became so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And so you end up with people like Jim, the son of Jim, or Tim, the son of Tim. You know, and you get all these three, and that's how people identified themselves, that, that that was your your lineage. And what it meant is that your sibling relationships were your closest and strongest identity, not your spousal relationship. So you might get married, but the likelihood is it was an arranged marriage. Doesn't mean it was unloving or unromantic, but it was an arranged marriage. And so actually that was just a secondary bit to your family. Your primary family remained that of your siblings. Why am I telling you all this? Well, one, because it's not how we think about family. But when we now come to read this passage, and Jesus says... Who are my mother and my brothers? Well, everybody knows the answer to that, right? It's a daft question. Well, it's Mary standing outside and James and whoever else brothers that are hanging. That, that's, that's who it is. And Jesus says, Here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. In other words, that thing that is the building block of our entire culture, our entire society, is this, not that. As someone said, Jesus is building now a community or a family based not on shared bloodlines, but on a shared father and a shared story. Everything is being turned upside down. And so the definition of the family is now no longer who was your earthly father, but rather who does God's will. Ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic norms are done away with. It doesn't matter whether you're the same coloured skin. It doesn't matter if you're in the same socioeconomic class. It doesn't matter what your gender is. 
At this point now, we are all brothers and sisters as we do God's will. Something has changed. And this is why the language of adoption later in the New Testament becomes so profound. Because we are brought into a family, not as those who've kind of sneaked in the back door or anything like that, but actually those who have been adopted into that family. Chosen to be part of that family. Legally part of that family with all the rights that a natural born child would have. It was a dangerous thing in the first century to see these things. I think it's still dangerous today. It risks upsetting the apple cart. I can well imagine people sitting here thinking, yeah, but my family's still really my family. It has first call. And Jesus is saying, no. Your first, most important relationships are not your family relationships, but this family relationships. This is what it is to have a brother or a sister or mother is to be here, not outside. Now, in the wrong context, that sounds like a cult, okay? Can we just be honest about that? If you're a visitor here, you're currently going, these people are flipping weird, let me out here, where's the door? That's the risk. But it's also what Jesus taught. And we don't get to shy away from that. I want to say two or three things very quickly. The language of family is good news. Okay? For three reasons. One, it says we belong to God. We belong to God. There is nothing more profound, nothing more identity changing than the moment you realize you belong to God, that he actually loves you, that you can't be plucked out of his hand. That those verses that I mentioned earlier in Romans, that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love, that that is true. That what Tim said earlier, from uh, quoting Jesus from Luke, that, that the Father, he loves you and he won't give you a snake. He won't give you a stone instead of bread. Instead, he will give you good gifts. Even more, he will give the Holy Spirit to you. That when you grasp that, there's a place that you belong now. No matter what else happens... No matter what befalls you, no matter the good things that happen, there is a place you belong. No matter whether you are married or you are single. No matter if you're widowed. No matter if you are someone who longs, longs to have a partner and finds themselves single. No matter if you are just someone who is a bit lost in life. You have a place to belong. Here. As soon as you discover that, you belong to God, and so you belong here. And the other bit of good news is it means there's room for all. There's absolutely no one excluded. And the challenge for those of us who are already in, the challenge for those of us who belong here, is to make sure this place doesn't just look like us. Right? 
I have the privilege of going to visit other churches sometimes. Do you know the biggest problem with the church in Scotland? For the most part, in fact, let's be a bit more. Let's be a bit more close to home. The biggest problem with the Baptist Church in Scotland is we're far too white and we're far too middle class. It's just true. It's a shame. And one of the reasons is because we bring too many people who are just like us. We need to be risky. Wouldn't it be great to come in and actually there were more people of colour here than there were white people? Wouldn't it be great to come here and there are more people who don't have jobs than have jobs? Because actually I think at that point we would begin to reflect something of the community that Jesus was building round about him. That's challenging. It would be messy, and we're about to get to the messiness bit because I haven't mentioned that yet. It would be messy, but wonderful. So those things are all good news. There's room for all. But here's the difficult news. We have to actually live with others, be around other people. And in case you haven't noticed, other people are difficult. Oh, come on. <laughs> how do we do that? You know, in our Western context, living in a big urban city, how do we live with others? What does that look like for us? Because it would be really easy just to go from Sunday to Sunday and think that this two hours that we have here on a Sunday morning is us living life together. It's, it's a start, but it's really only that. So let me encourage you, if you're able to, participate in one of our small groups. Turn up at a thing during the week. Whether that's one of our evening small groups, we have one on a Tuesday, two on a Thursday. Um, we're looking at starting a new one that would be a daytime one at some point. We have a drop-in on a Wednesday afternoon. Come along to that. Make that a community that you take part in. We have a prayer meeting on a Tuesday morning. Come along to that. Make that your thing. We have a prayer meeting on a Wednesday evening. Come along to that. Make that your community. Begin to share life with people. Because just turning up here on a Sunday... It's not really enough. It isn't doing community anyway. The other difficult thing is that it means that we're committed to one another. Brothers and sisters and mothers, as Jesus puts it, looked after one another. It was a long-term commitment. They shared resources. That means that it costs us, and I mean here in monetary things. It costs us our cash. It costs us having people to our home. It costs us the things that we have being given away. Now I know this is a generous church and it's wonderful. It's been one of the great things to see in the last year. So I'm genuinely, this is not the by the back door having the giving talk thing, but it's just the reality of our community. If we're going to be in community, we have to recognize it will cost us in very practical ways because we need to share our resources. It also means we're accountable to one another. It's where we all get a bit nervous, right? What is it to be accountable to one another? Accountable for showing up in the places we say we're going to show up in. 
accountable for the ways that we interact with one another. Accountable for trying to grasp some of these unforced rhythms of grace. To live that way. Accountable for the way we speak about one another. That's the difficult news. It's hard work to do that. And I refuse to force you to do that. I'm not going to make you get into pairs and share your deepest, darkest secret and make sure you check up on one another next week. But the fastest growing church in the world that I know of, there are other faster growing churches, but the one that I'm aware of, uh, the uh, One Life Movement, sorry, the Big Life Movement in India, it's exactly what they do. Every week, you turn up, what did we learn this week? What am I going to do with it? Then you come back next week, the first question, before you get your coffee down your throat or anything is, okay, you said you were going to, did you? Creates quite a drive, but I'm not going to force us to do that. This week. And the reason we're accountable is because we share responsibility for the health of the community. A community is not something that's out there that has a health that is somehow dissociated from the health of the people who are in it. Whether that means the health of our relationships and how we speak about one another, how we're encouraging one another, how we're doing those things, or whether it's about whether people are struggling, are we lifting them up? All of those things go together to make the health of a community because it's a shared responsibility. We can't opt out of the community, not really participate in it, and then moan about the state of the church. We all know, let's be honest, we've probably all done it, right, at some point. But we certainly have seen it happen, right, where people opt out and they're just kind of like, oh, I'm not having anything to do with it. But I tell you what, it's kind of rubbish, isn't it? You're like, well, come and take part. Come and participate. Because here's the thing, if you don't show up, right, there's two ways of looking at it. You don't show up. Then the most important thing about you not showing up is not what you miss out on, which is often the way we talk about it. You know, please come because you'll miss out if you don't. If you don't come, we miss out. You bring something every time you come here. Whether it's to this big gathering on a Sunday or some of our smaller gatherings through the week. We are lesser without you. Every time you opt out, and hear me, I I know we have other commitments in our lives and there's things we have to go and do. That's fine. I'm talking in the, the big general picture here. But if you opt out, if you're not participating, then it's not you who's primarily missing out. It's everyone else. Because we have a shared responsibility for this community and we have to all invest. I'm going to very quickly say two more things and then we're done. I have five on my list here. So as we go, I'm going to pick two of them. I think there are, I'm going to mention them and then I'll pick two that I'm going to say something about. I think there are five things that can help us embrace this concept of community. The first is hospitality. The second is forgiveness. The third is self-awareness. The fourth is identity, and the fifth is discernment. So, I'm going to talk a little bit of hospitality and forgiveness. And (laughs) self-awareness. 
So hospitality, you've heard me banging on about this almost since the first week that I turned up here. I don't think it's possible to do Christian community without offering hospitality. And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean hospitality as entertaining your friends or putting on a nice shiny dinner party, right? That's not what I mean by hospitality. I once heard someone uh, in a church that Tim was leading uh, in Australia, and this woman stood up the front and she said, listen, I can't do very much, but I can offer a hospitality of my life. And what she meant was she was happy to invite people to come and participate in her life. If she was going to do something, you could go with her and do that thing. That's hospitality. It's making space for someone else. It doesn't mean you have to put on a big fancy meal. It doesn't mean that you have to kind of abandon everything else you're doing. It's about making space for other people. If we want to build the kind of community that will help us be with Jesus and grow as apprentices of Jesus, we must offer hospitality. And we will need to do that in lots of different ways. But some of it is your responsibility. This will be one of the practices we take away from today, is that of hospitality. Can you make space in your life to invite someone into it, to participate in your life with you? The second is forgiveness. I mean, this is a sermon in itself, right? I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Because it's a good thing to do? No, Paul's more specific than that. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. This is something we have the world does not. We have a motivation to forgive I don't know if any of you saw the video that was doing the rounds on the internet the last couple of weeks. There was, um, the story is this, a young black man was in his own home, police came in the door, I think they thought it was, they think they went in the wrong door, and uh, they saw a black man in the house and they shot him and killed him. It's part of that bigger conversation in the United States about how the police are treating uh, black people. Anyway, the police officer who did the shooting was up in court um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, had been uh, uh, sentenced. And the brother uh, of the dead person was allowed to give a statement, uh, called a, uh, uh, an impact statement. And he stands up and he said, would it be okay if I gave the officer a hug and said, I forgive you? The most astonishing thing. And he did it, why? Because it was a good thing to do? No. Because he's been forgiven by God. It was an explicitly Christian act of forgiveness. What it wasn't was to say what happened was okay. What it wasn't was to say that the wider issue of racism in America is okay. It wasn't any of those things. It was an awareness that in that moment, that because someone had wronged him, And they had. Because he knew that God had forgiven him, it was his responsibility to forgive this person. We need to walk in the light of that, brothers and sisters. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. People genuinely wrong us. It's painful. And I am in no way ever denying the pain of any of that. But we must forgive. 
That's the call to follow Jesus. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ forgave you. God forgive you, sorry. That's the challenge for us. It's one of the practices that we can go and do. Where we feel wronged, where we have been wronged, not just feel wronged, then we get the chance to do that. And finally, self-awareness. Why does community matter? Because it makes you profoundly aware of your own failings. I, we have had the privilege of having our dear friends with us from Australia. Now, we don't, they live in Australia, so we don't get to see them very often, right? Because it's quite far away. Um, we, what, uh, we saw you three years ago. Before that, it was four years before that for about a day and a half. And before that, it was about four years before that. So in the last ten years, roughly, we've seen them for three times. Once for a day and a half, once for five days, and then this time for a week. And we've lived together. Four kids, four adults, two-bedroom flat. Yeah, right, I can hear the chuckles. <laughs> right? The kids are 13, 12... Oh, no, sorry, Zoe's not 13 yet. She's definitely not 13 yet. She's still only 12. Uh, two 12-year-olds, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old. Right? That's a lot of people in not a lot of space. We spent loads of time in the car. We went to see Inverness and Lossiemouth and Glencoe, Dalwhinnie. Beautiful places. We're all clamped into this one space. Makes you profoundly aware of your own failings. What do I mean? Why do you get frustrated sometimes, Glenn? See, I've only got one child. Suddenly I've got four running about. Like my, I'm like, oh, noise, noise. Everywhere, noise. I can't cope. Why is this bothering me, Glenn? What's going on in me there? God, what would you like to say to me about that? Because isn't it brilliant that kids make noise and run about and laugh and have fun and don't want to sit still in a car for four and a half hours? The problem isn't them, the problem's me. What's going on in me? You see, good, healthy community makes us profoundly aware of our own places of weakness. And that's not something to be afraid of, because that's where Jesus promises to show up and do his work. And so we get to be with God. And allow God to do his work in us as we enter into genuine community. I'm not suggesting you all have four children come and live in your small places with you all the time. Though if you want four kids, I think we could help you out with that for a while. (laughs) Community is profoundly important. Jesus redefines it as family. He says this is the thing on which we are going to build this society. I might call it the kingdom of God. He says it's going to look profoundly different to anything else in all of culture. And for us it will be a deep challenge. It will require us to embrace some practices. The practice of hospitality. The practice of forgiveness. The practice of self-awareness. The practices of identity. In other words, and understanding who we are and whose we are. And discernment. We don't have time for that today. We'll come back to that another time. We don't make decisions on our own. 
we submit them to one another. Completely radical idea, but don't have time for it today. I promised we were going to finish with silence. We're so far over time, we are still going to finish with some silence. I apologise if that's a problem for you. We'll only be a few minutes. Take a deep breath. I have talked a lot at you and tried to throw a bunch of stuff at you in a hurry. Just as we did last week, we're going to slow down. Become conscious of your breathing. Don't don't stop breathing. But be conscious, become present to yourself, be comfortable, sit in a way that is comfortable for you. Switch from listening to me to listening to God. All those thoughts that are coming rushing into your mind just now, don't hold on to them, just let them flitter by. That's what will happen. And picture Jesus with you. Become attentive to what he would say to you this morning. Father, we thank you that you meet us in the quiet. Thank you that you meet us in one another. And that you've not called us simply to solitude, but also to community. Help us to know how to live out these practices. Not for their own sake, but that we might be with Jesus. And that we might become ever more faithful 
apprentices to Jesus. So fill us up. Send us out. In the power of your name. In the confidence that you are on the throne. And help us to go into this world, not fearing the world. But having complete confidence that you have overcome. And that we are yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.